Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. Turning it on, nine times out of ten, translates into phoniness. Not to say everyone's bad at pitching, and but that's the mistake you can make, is seeming like you're trying to sell someone. Seeming like you're trying to persuade them, trick them, whatever. It just And again, this is me. And uh, like you said before, whoever, uh, uh, Simpsons folks would have their way of doing it. Maybe they put on the craziest show when they pitch. But for me and my journey going along, it's worked because... It's honest and it's all I, ha- all I have is me. All I have is my personality and my stories and who I am. If this is who I am, why would it be different when I'm telling you about a commercial I want to sell you? Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Glad you're here. It's an exciting episode, part two with Steve Dildarian. This guy's incredible. You're going to really enjoy it a lot. I know you will. Hope you're looking forward to the holidays. I know I am. Really special time. And the industry kind of shuts down a little bit, but I've always found that great things always happen in December. And it always leads to something great in the new year. So I hope that happens for you. And I'm looking forward to it tremendously. Before I get started, you can reach me at Barry Katz at Instagram or Twitter or at BarryKatz.com. And before I get started with this episode with Steve Dildarian, I just want to share with you my thoughts on this guy because he really, really impressed me. Sitting down with him, it was like sitting down with somebody who was not just a leader of all kinds of people, but somebody who was a calming force, somebody who had sat in so many rooms as an advertising copywriter with some of the biggest people in the business and always created campaigns that won throughout his career, including many of them in the Super Bowl, the biggest stage for commercials. But what really impressed me about him so much is how he had a vision or a dream to create something, even though he was in another career entirely. He never knew how to do animation. He never worked on it before, but he just decided one day he was going to do it and create something. And he did. And that thing that he created won the Animated Short Award at the U.S. Comedy and Arts Festival. And as you know, when you win something, people take notice. And he was able to get his first series made, The Life and Times of Tim, with HBO, who obviously was affiliated with the festival. And what really impressed me is that really a guy who never even was in this world had another career, but just decided that 
he wanted to do something and he saw all the possibilities that were available to him. And he put himself out there and he won. And then he's winning again. And he won with that series, The Life and Times of Tim, which went for like five years until 2012. And now he's got another show on the air, 10-Year-Old Tom, that's streaming right now on HBO Max. And he's winning again. The guy figures out a way to do it. And he doesn't just write it. He doesn't just create it. He doesn't star in it. He doesn't just executive produce it. He does everything. And he trained himself in the beginning with the short he did. He worked on it. He didn't say to himself, oh, well, I need an agent. I need a manager. I need this person. I need that person. He just went out and made it happen. And of course, he got representation after that and lawyers and agents and managers. The point is, is when he had a dream and a vision of doing something, even though he was working full time at another job, he found the time to do it and he made it happen and he made it work. He had a sense of urgency for what he wanted to do and he followed through and he made it happen. And then after he made it happen, he put it out there. And I can guarantee you, if you can figure out a way to do that, you'll have the kind of career that Steve Dildarian has. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! Harry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. There's different philosophies in pitching. When you're going in and pitching, when you are an unknown entity, when you're the newer guy, sometimes they say, eh, you know, have your pitch ready, but if you notice they're not really liking it, have your backup pitch to pitch to them. <laughs> but to people who are more established, they normally say, don't do that. Go strong with your one idea. Yeah. Did you have a backup when you pitched? Oh, yeah. We, we always had ideas. But the pitch is funny because that business teaches skills that this business necessarily doesn't. Going into different big boardrooms, like you said, to stone-faced people uh, as a young writer, you learn how to pitch pretty well. You have to. You have to do it in the agency. You have to do it when you fly to all these cities to pitch to big clients. So you get good at it. And I, I got pretty good at it, um, and it's a, it served me well in this business uh, only because someone said it to me very early in my career. It was the, the first business trip I ever went on to L.A. from New York, and the meeting went well. And my boss said to me in the car afterwards, he said, uh, he says, Steve, you're going to do well in this business. I said, oh, yeah. Why do you say that? He says, because when you talk, people believe you. And he goes, you can't put a price on that. Uh, and I just, there was a passing moment in a car, but it stuck with me all these years later because it's the truth. And it's, it's what, it's the way I talk to you right now is the way I pitch a show is the way I read the voice in the show. Everything is just honest and me talking. But you know what's odd? Yeah. I don't visualize you pitching the lizards and the frogs the way you are now. <laughs> with this energy and the way you are when you approach your show. I pitch you as somebody. You think I would crank it up or <laughs> tone it down or which I, way? I think you'd probably crank it up more. <laughs> no. Part of the sale is being able to ride the wave and to be able to figure out if people there's, want energy and not. You've already sold your there's show. There's no you're shortage of people in that business or this that are showmen that when they're ready to pitch, they turn it on. Turning it on, nine times out of ten, translates into phoniness. Not to say everyone's bad at pitching, and but that's the mistake you can make, 
is seeming like you're trying to sell someone. Seeming like you're trying to persuade them, trick them, whatever. It just, and again, this is me. And uh, like I said before, whoever uh, uh, Simpsons folks would have their way of doing it. Maybe they put on the craziest show when they pitch. But for me and my journey going along, it's worked because it's honest and it's all I have. All I have is me. All I have is my personality and my stories and who I am. If this is who I am, why would it be different when I'm telling you about a commercial I want to sell you? I would presume it's because you have to adjust <laughs> to the climate of who you're dealing with and the role. Like if I'm a comedian and I'm going on at the Apollo, I'm going to perform differently than if I'm performing at the Improv on Melrose. Yeah, that's interesting. And sometimes you just can respectfully disagree because for me... I don't change anything ever for anyone or any reason. There might, I'm not saying, I'm, I don't even think about it. It's not even a conscious decision. Just, and it's honestly not even something I have a strong opinion on. I wouldn't even think of something like this until you asked me pointedly about it. It would never occur to me to talk differently because of the room I'm in or the reason I'm there. If anything, if I want to sound enthusiastic, I'll sound like my version of enthusiasm. I want to sound excited. It'll be my version of being excited or whatever it wants to be. I just, uh, again, I, I never even going into pitch something. I don't give it, a, I don't rehearse it. I don't think about it. The times I've pitched TV shows in this world, I, I have like a piece of paper in front of me with maybe three bullet points. Make sure I hit these three bullet points Cause I've seen people pitch things and they're like reading a script. I'm like, hey. I've been in those rooms. Really? And then I'm sure there's many versions of a full script that you're literally reading and everything in between. For me, I, I try to just know it so well that when I talk, it just sounds like, oh, he sounds earnest and excited and he means it. And I think that serves you well no matter what you're doing. Again, nothing to do with animation per se. When you're writing a commercial that's a 30-second or 60-second commercial, what's the difference of creating the story and hitting the beats and the joke and the message? Then what similarities are there to writing an animated show? Yeah, it's funny. It's um, Advertising is a great way to learn the discipline of writing with economy and because you Especially with what I do, where there's character-driven stuff. I love you, what you, you said, writing with economy. Yeah. Fantastic. Because you have 30 seconds to intro to do everything, to introduce the characters or the premise of the story, make people care about it, make it escalate and have a satisfying resolution. Every sentence has to count. Every second has to count. So you get very good at just having purpose for every line and writing in a tight manner and understanding the way you can nonverbal communication. There's all kind of versions of it that you learn. Uh, and, and, you know, when I started doing the TV show, the, one of the producers on the show said to me, uh, you're, it's, it's amazing. Your show, in a good way, he said, feels like a bunch of 60-second commercials strung together. <laughs> you, you, There's this really tight punchy story with a beginning, middle, and end, and then you move on to the next one, and you keep doing it over and over, and there's a lot of truth in that, because when I look at, and I did a lot of radio when I was in advertising, I did pretty well with radio spots, um, I just look at it like any anything's got a an arc, so I'm looking for a little 60-second, my stuff's so dialogue-driven, what's a 60-second story for these characters to discuss, plant the conflict early? Let it rise, let it go up till it blows up and get out. And uh, it's what comes naturally to me, maybe because I was trained so thoroughly in advertising. So you go out with this animated short that you do for the first time. How do you get in touch with the networks or the studios to... So let me back up because that's, yeah, maybe I left that part out. (laughs) Uh, There was an overlap period where... 
I, I had just sold the Lizard campaign that did well. And I started writing TV pilots. Someone from Disney called and I went down and got an agent. And for about five years. Wait, how did you get an agent? For... Well, basically, long story short, I was doing the Super Bowl stuff with the Lizards. Someone at Disney called. I flew down to L.A. and met with her. She set me up with an agent at William Morris at the time and, um, and an attorney. And each year I sold, I sold a live action script to ABC that year. And I would do that once a year, maybe once every other year for the next five years. So I was fully immersed in advertising, doing my Super Bowl stuff, like year round day job. But I would write a pilot and I sold one. I sold two to CBS, one to ABC, one to Fox. So I was in the business on some level. I was just in San Francisco and on my own time writing these pilots. So when it came time to do this short, I wasn't totally green and just coming in like that. What I was trying to do was learn from my mistakes because those original pilots, if you ever read them, they were not me. They were not the world, the space I would end up occupying. They were what I thought a TV show should be or it wasn't what I saw in Dr. Katz, like I said earlier. I didn't really deliver on that. I, I just said, oh, what's a funny CBS sitcom? So it didn't work, and it for good reason. So when I got to this short film, I sent it to who, who was my agent at the time, and he was an older guy, and he he, was, he looked at it and said, oh, that's cute, Stephen. I don't know what to do with it, but it's cute. I'm like, that's your reaction? So I knew he couldn't be my agent anymore because I thought I just struck gold, and he just like dismissed it. So I sent it to this much younger agent who some people had recommended. At the same company? Or no, different no, company? different company. He was at Endeavor. Um, sent it to him. And I'll never forget. He, I was like in San Francisco. I was like shopping. Uh, and he called me. And he couldn't stop talking. And I, I didn't even know the guy at the time. I just sent it to him. And he says, Steve, I, I, you have to let me be your agent. This is going to be a TV show. I promise you. I promise you. And I know it just sounds like an agent talking. But he delivered on it within nine months. He, I could tell he was excited. I could tell he got it. And um, like right after that phone call, that's when they used to do the Aspen, you know, HBO Comedy Arts. And, yeah, of course. Uh, the film got into there. And so while he was out hitting the ground running, trying to sell it, they loved it. And they called me and said, uh, you know, we don't have a an animated shorts category, but the judges love it so much they want to give it an award. So if we make it a shorts, animated shorts, instead of just the general animation category, will you come in? And I did. And it ended up being like one of the best weekends of my career, professional career. I was just by myself. No one else could really go. So I'm there by myself, not knowing a person in the whole place. And I remember Dave Chappelle was there. I, remember, I was seeing these people around and... No one really competing for the same prize because there's stand-ups, there's improv, there's filmmakers, there's animators. So it was just a very supportive kind of vibe that I loved. I never feel like a world and a community that I was never a part of. And to be getting the kind of reactions I was from this piece of work, I I was just I, I was just vibrating at a very high frequency the whole time. And then at the last night, we got the whole festival got snowed in because the airport shut down. So I had to go back for one more night. I'll just never forget. I was sitting in that hotel, Jerome. Uh, I love that hotel. Snow, just sitting at the bar by myself, snow just pouring down through the window outside and just knowing, just in that moment, these fleeting moments, you might have one or two in your life or career. I'm like, I know my life's about to change, like tomorrow. And it did. He sold it pretty quick. We sold it to Fox originally. And then eventually when they didn't do it, it went to HBO. But things just started happening fast. I had the right agent, the right team around me who got the work. And uh, it was just a very exciting time that it took me a little, like I said, I wouldn't have been ready for that moment if I hadn't had the five, six years of failures behind me. Well, so it wasn't just leaping out of advertising, quitting my, it wasn't that kind of thing. It was slowly getting myself ready so when the when the opportunity came i was ready to seize it 
100% of all of your advertising pitches getting to the point through the minutia of the company and your face-to-face with the person who makes the decisions. 100% pie, what's your percentage conversion rate of sales, <laughs> if you had to guess? Pretty high. I have to say I, uh, 80%. Uh... We're in a 3% business yeah, at yeah. best in the, in the entertainment. Your conversion rate, even with your failures in television and in advertising, is insane. Well, it's interesting. To me, it gets into the writing of it all. There's a reason pitches go well, because I don't, I don't go into it unless I know I've got it. Some people pitch a million things. Some people write. I know writers, every year they got four things they're working on. When you say you know you've got it, what does that mean? In the TV business, what it means is I write far fewer things than most people. I tend to write things that I wait for them to come to me. I wait until I love it. I wait until I would die to make it. And then I get the right people around me and then I go pitch it. So when I go pitch it, it's been vetted in my world, in my brain, I know I've got it. I, I'm not hoping they like something. I'm not seeing what sticks. I've, and that's 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 not a great way to live your career, your life, because it takes a lot longer. When my first show was done, it took me eight years to get to this moment, because of what I'm describing to you, because I would do one project at a time. You're talking about the life and times of Tim? Yeah, when that wrapped up, that was 2012. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a -a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, We can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. And I would basically do one project at a time. Each one of them I loved quite a bit, but it takes years to get that yes or no. I wouldn't change it. I wouldn't do it any differently because that's all I know. I'm just not the kind of person that's just going to be spitting things out and seeing what people want to do. I want to kind of dictate my own fate. And uh, so for better or worse, I did one idea at a time. Those pitches, I think I don't think I ever went in to pitch something and didn't sell it, like to somebody, to one of the networks. Someone always bought it because I'm. they should buy it because I've – as long as the business believes I've got some ability to write and I'm talented, I've done my own homework. I'm not trying to trick anyone. I'm not trying to just see if I can get you to buy something. A lot of people, it's very common. Just half these, half of the things, as you know, it's a deal more than a, the origin is not always the writer with a brilliant idea that they care about deeply. That's not always the foundation. Sometimes the foundation is, oh, we've got this person and that actor and let's get in and sell it. And that's half the business. Um, but with me, I don't know. I just try to, if I'm pitching something and like I said, I got nothing written down in front of me and you just let me talk for 20 minutes. It's going to sound hopefully interesting, funny, relevant. Like it would tick off most of the boxes cause I've, I've done the homework and it was no different in advertising. I, if I would go to a meeting, I i don't know, maybe I, it's hard for me to critique my own process or my own writing, but uh, 
yeah, I've had a pretty good good run. Not, uh, I, I probably should have been much more prolific at, by this point in my TV world. Uh, I'm not great at managing my career, per se. You know, to to just do the the one animated show as I s- stumbled on. Uh, I don't know. I'm not a business, not a business minded person. I'm pretty bad with. It seems to me like a lot of people who experience success like you, they allow people to come in their world and pitch them ideas for animated show. We oversee this and be an executive yeah. producer and do this. And you don't want to do that. You only want to do your own things. Yeah. You don't want to be the person who just puts his name on something and builds his business that way because that dilutes your brand and who you are. So you've made that choice. And uh, it's a choice of respect. Yeah. Yeah. No, sometimes, you know, I'm very protective of whatever gift or talent I've got because it's all I have and it's the only reason I've been able to make any money and be comfortable in life and I discovered it at a very early age and it's kind of a miracle that I've done well to be honest you know it's you wouldn't be betting money on me when I was a little kid so knowing that that is so precious I think I I'm just very protective, whether it's other people putting things into my periphery or even giving notes on my work or me myself making the wrong decision. I'm very, um, very protective of it. And if you don't mind, just for a few minutes, I'd like to just go way back and take us through where you grew up, what your family was like and what the economic dynamic was. And then just tell us what your inspiration was to getting into advertising and then into this crazy yeah. business. Yeah. It's uh, one of those things. It was just, uh, you know, my, my dad died when I was young and it was just me and my uh, mom and brother and no one in the family had any experience with any kind of, um, like white collar jobs or my dad, when he was around was a printer in Manhattan and, my mom, you know, worked at Johnson and Johnson and she was a substitute teacher. And, you know, she, so there was no path for getting into entertainment. <laughs> there was like, a, there was nothing about that seemed real or like an option even. But by the time I was pretty young, uh, I started noticing that I was good at writing and writing funny. I probably noticed it when I was like, 10 maybe yeah, right, right around 10 I was praised for they sent me on a young authors convention in grade school like they picked one boy and one girl from the school so at that age about 10 I was told I'm good at writing and I wrote this funny silly poem uh, and then a few years later in junior high one of my teachers English teacher pulled me aside after class and said uh, I just want to tell you your thing was so funny I took it home and showed my husband and again, it was a passing two-second thing that I remember to this day because another time that it, someone told me, you're very good at this. And so when I got into high school, I started looking at how can that be a career? And I didn't know. And I I wanted to write TV, but I, I wasn't going to move to L.A. Like, it just wasn't realistic. So advertising started to be a thing. And so when I was in college, you know, I knew I was good at writing, yet I was still since it didn't seem real, I'm like, maybe I'll get it to just some other part of the business. It's like sales. You know, we're talking about pitching things. I was probably pretty good at that at the time too. So I said, maybe I'll get into ad sales, which just seems like so ridiculous looking back. But my friend's dad was in advertising. He goes, go talk to my dad. He was like, he sold ad space for the Daily News. So I went in, uh, went to his house and talked to him. And he gave me like, the, as long as you get a piece of advice, it just resonates. And I, I went to his house and I said, uh, told him the whole story where I'm at. And he goes, you know what? I'm going to tell you real quickly because you remind me of myself at your age. And I went into sales. He says, become a writer. You can always fall back on sales. You can't fall back on writing. And I, 
I left there that night so fired up and never turned back. It was just, I needed one person to say, I hear the options, do that one. And I said, the only reason I was even asking them was I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know how to get into the business. I didn't know anybody. I had been rejected for internships at every ad agency. But I didn't know anyone. Usually those things are someone knows someone. And uh, he says, just write letters to people. You know, go go see who's doing funny things. Contact them and see if they'll talk to you. I said, really? They'll do that? And he says, you never know. Try it. Uh, so I contacted like dozens of people in New York. And a couple responded. And I went in. They let me in. And it, it was... I remember going into the city to meet these people, staring up at the building on Third Avenue, just like it was this otherworldly thing. Uh, and once I met that one copywriter, I was in. You know, then I had contacts, and he set me up with a night school, and I was just off to the races pretty quickly because I wrote one letter to one guy who was nice enough to set a half hour aside in his day, and then. I went from having no contacts to the door opening. And so, so anyway, then I started doing well in New York and all the commercials and moved to San Francisco. So it was kind of a circuitous route to get to doing what I'm, I wanted to do when I was about 15. I knew, I knew TV, you know, sitcom writing was what I wanted to do. And I just took a big, big, I loved it. Advertising was great to me and I had a ton of fun and great friends to this day. But it ended up being a really long detour. <laughs> I always wonder what my career would have been if I started when I was 22. If all the energy I put into all those commercials for all that time, if I just, I don't know. This is one of those things you never know. The world has a plan. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm happy with where I am. I'm, I love what I'm doing and I feel like I'm Meant, I feel a great sense of purpose that I'm doing the right thing and I'm meant to be doing it. But, you know, I just took a roundabout roundabout way to get there. One, two, Six degrees of separation. Six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention some names. Okay. And just tell me anything that comes to mind. Uh -oh. could, be a, could be a story, a sentence, a, a short thing, whatever it is. Okay. John Malkovich. <laughs> it was one of those things we just said a John Malkovich type in the casting spec. And uh, the casting agent said, why don't we send it to him? I said, don't waste everyone's time. And they sent it and he said he wanted to do it. You know, I got on the phone with him that first session. He was just so warm and gracious and funny and complimentary. It was, uh, that's one of those things. When in life would your paths cross, you know? Me, the whole story I just told you, John Malkovich acting out my <laughs> my script. Is, uh, so get, yeah, getting to work with him has been a real thrill. Jennifer Coolidge. She had actually done a voice on my old show. I don't even know if she remembers doing it. She did a voice on my old show. Um, yeah, she was so... When when we started recording, on the, everyone's in different places during COVID. She was in a hotel room in Hawaii, which at the time I was... It was just kind of an annoyance because as great as she is and we were so excited to have her, there was a lot of technical glitches. Hotel rooms don't have good Wi-Fi and... Uh, it was a bunch of tech problems. And then months later, I realized she was doing White Lotus, which I love so much. And it's like, this is so funny to think, oh, that's what she was doing when we were recording. She was in the middle of, of uh, filming that. And she was, but she's just so great. And again, I, I've watched so much of her stuff over the years. It's, it doesn't seem real sometimes to get to act with people like that. Your favorite animated show of all time? I don't, um, if I'm being honest, I don't have one. Like I said, 
things like Dr. Katz influenced me, but I liked it for a couple years at that time. I don't think I've watched it since. I don't, you know, I, uh, I honestly just don't watch animation. I don't care for it. <laughs> I don't. Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I wanna do it because I wanna help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Let's say a, a show like BoJack Horseman. Mm -hmm. Do you ever get curious and you're just like, wow, the people are talking about how this is a really biting on the industry. Let me take a look at this. Or you just don't care. I, uh, if I, if I... I don't, it's just. Are there live I, action shows that mean something to you that well, you care about that influence oh, yeah. you? All kind of things, yeah. Well, Curb, Curb Enthusiasm was probably the biggest and most obvious. When I saw Curb for the first time, it had been on for two seasons at least, right around two, maybe three. And people who had been telling me about it, they keep saying, oh, you got to watch Curb Enthusiasm. It's like, you're going to love it. It's just like you. And I kept hearing that over and over. So eventually I watched it. And it was it must have been around the time when I was about to write Angry and Paid Hooker. Yeah, if you ever did the math, this timeline would sync up. Because I was dabbling with that script when people were telling me to watch Curb. And I finally watched it. And in, it was instant. I watched the show, the first episode. And it's just like the a, a light bulb of all light bulbs. Not only did I think it was funny, but... I'm like, oh, that's how you write a show. It just, it demystified the whole thing in like a blink of an eye. I'm like, oh, just write your point of view going through the world. I'll do my version of that. And you, you know, this got a similar singular uh, point of view. And then there's elements of the show. It's a very different dynamic, I think, in what he writes. But, but it, was, it was beyond an influence. It was just like... It's the only reason my shows exist. I don't think I would have written the script. Uh, it it un just like I said when I made that short, it unleashed something. Watching Curb unleashed something. It just something was blocked and then it was open. It just made it look so easy. Jackie Gleason. <laughs> Jack. Yeah, that it's hard to say which had a bigger influence on me because they're different times. I grew up like anyone on the east coast you know odd couple was on channel 11 odd couple at 11 o'clock honeymooners at 11 30 and i just it was a big deal at least in my house and in the travel circles i was traveling in i knew everything about the honeymooners my wall was you know pictures of art carney and the audrey meadows and the whole the whole honeymooners cast i watched it every night of the week I knew everything about the trivia at the pizza place I worked at. We would do trivia contests and I would always win. I had, I, I don't have it anymore because I switched to a smaller wallet, but I still carry around this card, my Ralph card. I was a member of the uh, Royal Association for the Longevity and Preservation of the Honeymooners, which spells out Ralph. Uh, but I, to this day, I don't watch it much anymore, but if I put it on, I'm just smiling 
not even laughing, just like in a almost giddy state of amusement. And I think there's so much of that show and everything I write that's more, like I said before, it's like I'm not even aware of it. It's just simmering under the surface. It's the point of view of the main character, the underdog quality, uh, the dreamer kind of quality, um, the simplicity of the sets. A lot of my stuff is very stage play-like. And, you know, Angry Happy Hooker, even the first episode that aired on HBO, it's one room. The whole, the whole episode takes place in one room. So I didn't do it because I like the Honeymooners, but when I look back, I'm like, oh, I guess that's what I, what I did. But yeah, those two shows, The Honeymooners and Curb Enthusiasm, that's my whole, my whole story right there. Your proudest moment in show business. Proudest moment. <laughs> I don't. That's a tough one. I um. I don't know if I have a – usually you ask a question. I'll have like a lot of – my instincts will just start spitting something out. When you ask me that, nothing comes to mind. I don't feel pride and uh, like any kind of accomplishments. I feel very lucky that I managed to slip in and create this little – area for myself to work in if you look at my show on hbo the first one it's insane that it even got on the air it was drawn so rough and squiggly and i didn't know what i was doing and they didn't care they put it on anyway it's got like this cult it's on for like five years yeah it's on for three seasons over five years and, and it's got a big cult following that we're, i'm now learning was even stronger than i think i realized the life and times of yeah the crowd from that has really come out from the woodwork and vocally um when they when hbo max put it back on it's amazing how strong the following is but i just i don't know i feel like fortunate more than proud i don't know if that's the way you meant the question but i'm not proud of too much i just feel like uh i'm happy that I get to do what I love and people react to it. I think when, when you, you know, people react to your work, it's a beautiful thing. You know, it's like a, it's not a moment. It's not a thing that happened. It's not a, something you can quantify with a date or a story, but the fact that my work is out there and people care better and it sticks around uh, and it affects people. I'm proud of that. You know, I get a lot of people with the show. You know, comedy, you know, being around it the way you are, it's a powerful thing. It's not about comedy when it works. The people that like my show, that really like it, uh, the fact that it's funny is almost a byproduct. Like, so many people tell me it got them through hard times in their life, and that's the only character they connect with and they feel such a sense kindred spirit and it's just human beings connecting through storytelling and it's it's really i don't know how else to say it except it's a powerful thing uh when people write to me like on social media just like messages and stuff like that it's probably the most fun i have in the business People writing me a one sentence and picking the joke they liked, you know? Because that's, that's the whole reason I, if the whole thing comes full circle, it's why I started writing in the first place, to connect, to express, to make sense of my, you know, world around me. That's why any art or creativity exists. So for to work, to land, that's completing the big loop. So, um... That's that's the, the part that I, you know, really enjoy because 
Some people ask me what I enjoy the most making a show. I'm like, I don't, I don't know if I enjoy it at all. I don't, it's like a, it's a labor. It's like a trying to get the show out, get your vision out is like a painful thing. It's not fun. <laughs> your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level. Oh man, it's probably it's probably right before I sold this show. Most of the good things I've done have come on the heels of a big failure. And right before this show, I had done a live action pilot for Fox and it couldn't have been going better. And it's exactly what I wanted to do. Just live action on a big network, big platform. I had an office on the lot, big director, Seth Gordon was shooting it. And Dana Walden, they said, who was the head of the network at the time, said she loves it so much. She wants you to come in and talk to her. And it was like, as you've been around many times, it couldn't have been more buzz. It couldn't have been more, this is so fast-tracked. It couldn't be more fast-tracked. So the hype was just hype on hype on hype. And then it started being, oh, wait, Disney's buying Fox? What's happening? <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, this person's leaving the network? Oh, no, they can't leave. Wait, Dana Walden's leaving? <laughs> and then it's like, oh wait, they're they're because of the Murdochs, they want to do all multicams <laughs> and no single. So it couldn't have been closer with literally, are they buying a ticket to the upfronts for you tomorrow? <laughs> to the network being sold and me being back to ground zero and the, the pilots in the garbage, and I can't <laughs> even get a copy of it. <laughs> So that's that's the moment that I was in that led me to the, sh the moment I'm in now, which is the greatest. You know, I can't believe how how perfect everything is for the moment. You know, you should send Disney a fruit basket. <laughs> but that that was a beyond a heartbreaker. It was. Especially, when, like I said before, I do one thing at a time, no backup plan, no real other idea ready to pitch. So when that bad news comes in, for the next year, I'm sitting there going to Home Depot every day, fixing my yard up and painting. I do a lot of oil paintings and just find ways to stay busy Last until inspiration came, you know. And certainly did come in a big way. Last question. What advice do you have for the young person who, you know, grows up in a tough situation? I lost my dad when I was four. And you have this adversity, this hole blown through you. And you really don't have an understanding of where you're going to go, what's going to happen to fight through it all and to get to the point to have the kind of amazing autonomous career that you have well it depends all i can speak to is what i do and as a writer you know you never enjoy adversity while it's happening or nine times out of ten it's the thing that will propel you to success so just knowing that and tucking it away in the back of your mind i think is is good advice but again you can't it's hard to act on it when the bad thing's happening you will not take comfort in knowing that, oh, this will help me someday. But it probably will. With comedy, any kind of writing, really, it all comes from pain. It all comes from sadness. That's at least the good stuff. Kind of, you know, most good comedy is an inverse, you know, it's a reaction to something bad. It's, it's your coping mechanism. So, more bad stuff that happens, the more ammunition you've got. Uh, you know, again, it's that's not even advice as much as just knowledge you acquire along the way. But uh, to me, if I'm talking to someone who's trying to get into this, the thing that a lot of people, a lot of people look at it like it's an uphill battle. Like it's, like no one wants to hear you or it's daunting because you're on the outside. The truth is, 
everyone wants to hear everyone's story. It's the starting point is you're ahead. If you could take any person off the street, what they have to say about their life, their point of view on the world is interesting. It's probably funny. It's probably all kinds of things that would be riveting if you just put a microphone in front of them or sat around a campfire, whatever you want to call it. Everyone's got a good story. If you can just get out of your own way, don't try to do what other people think you should do. Don't try to do what the business asks of you or what's hot or trendy. Or If you just manage to tell your story, just the way I say I'm going to pitch, I, being honest is all I do. Because it's not much harder than that. Telling a person or the world what happened to you is interesting. It's probably going to be funny, too, if you just, you know, spend a little time writing it the right way. And, uh, you know, most people don't realize that it's, it's, you've got a captive audience waiting for you if you just are willing to go there and bear your soul. F. Scott Fitzgerald had a, I used to read a lot of his letters and things. He gave that piece of advice where it's, Someone had sent him a story and he didn't care for it. And he says, as long as you keep writing things that touch you lightly, the world doesn't need you. When you learn to write about your greatest embarrassments, your greatest fears, and your, however he phrased it, things you're most ashamed of, no one will want to read it more to me. And that's uh, doesn't sound like the funniest thing, but I believe it strongly. If you... Uh, you want to write comedy, go to the stuff that bothers you and that upsets you. And you probably got something pretty funny to write about. Steve Dildarian, you are very good at this. <laughs> really fantastic. This was so great. For all of you, please check out 10-Year-Old Tom on HBO Max. And it's streaming now. And... It's a really fantastic show, and you don't have to read these 700 reviews that say so. <laughs> you can just watch it yourself. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank I you. appreciate you coming all the way out here to Malibu. <laughs> I really um, enjoyed it. But it meant a lot to me. Thank yeah, you. Me too. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. You're going far. Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.